thanks for pressing play. What kind of head and neck trauma cases were managed by deployed surgeons in recent conflicts? How can we use this information to improve training and skill sustainment initiatives for future contingency operations, which may be even more constrained in terms of resources and personnel? Stick around and find out. Welcome to War Dogs, the military medicine podcast. This show brings you a first-hand, behind-the-scenes look into the mission, unique opportunities, and deployed experiences of the entire military healthcare team. From state-of-the-art hospitals in the United States to the most austere environments across the globe, War Docs has you covered. Military Medicine and War Docs present a Ready Medical Force Special Collection. We speak with the authors of recently accepted journal articles addressing the key readiness issues in operational medicine and discuss the importance of their findings. On this episode, we speak with Drs. Karen Stern and Shane Jensen. Dr. Stern is the section chief of epidemiology and biostatistics at the Joint Trauma System. And Commander Shane Jensen is an active duty critical care trauma surgeon in the Navy and an assistant professor of surgery at USHUS. They discuss their military medicine paper, an analysis of head and neck surgical workload during recent combat operations from 2002 to 2016. I'm your host, retired Army urologist, Dr. Doug Soderdahl. Today, we're privileged to welcome Dr. Karen Stern and Dr. Shane Jensen to War Docs. Karen, Shane, thanks for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm thrilled to be here. Yes, thanks for having me. Happy to be here. So, Karen, we're going to be discussing your article that talks about an analysis of head and neck surgical workload during a period of pretty heavy combat operations covering 2002 through 2016, so about two decades worth. What led you to write this article and what concerns or questions were you trying to address? So this article was part of an overall study on surgical workload in deployed locations. This was actually the brainchild of Captain Stockinger, who was the chief of the joint trauma system at the time. I joined as a postdoc and he was speaking to me about the differences he was seeing, the pre-deployment training and what surgeons were doing in their daily practice and what was expected of them when they went out and were deployed. And we wanted to show the surgical procedures that are performed in theater, show the gaps in resident training, and use that data to inform pre-deployment and sustainment trauma training. And to be clear, we did not want to add additional pre-deployment training or anything like that. We just want to make the pre-existing training smarter and make sense. So how did you define head and neck surgical workload for this article and what injuries in the head and neck were excluded? So what we did, I somewhat tortured our docs at the beginning of this project. We took all of these surgical procedures that were performed at Roll 2 and Roll 3 MTFs and I put all of the IC9 and IC10 codes into an Excel sheet and I sent that out to the docs and I said, I need you guys to sort these out by anatomic location, skill set, however you want to do it. And that's how we did it for the overall workload project, the first paper that came out. For the subspecialty papers that we've subsequently done, I just took what we put in those groups and I sent that to them again and said, I need you to further divide these up by a skill set, anatomic location, however makes the most sense for you. And so what we ended up with was 385 IC9, IC10 codes that were included in this study. And we took in procedures that were dental, ophthalmologic, 
airway, ear, face, mandible maxilla, neck, and oral procedures. We excluded neurosurgical and vascular procedures because those had been previously defined in other workload manuscripts that were already published. So these are procedures that would be normally done by the folks on the head and neck team, the augmentation team, except for the neurosurgeon. So the ENT, the opto, the OMFS, those are the procedures that you guys looked at. Did you find a prevalence of these head and neck injuries that required head and neck specialty type surgeries? Yeah, the head and neck accounts for 12% of the body surface area, which remains largely exposed during combat operations. You have your goggles, you have your helmet, but then you have everything else that's still exposed. So we've found, and it's been documented, that in 29% of patients that show up at deployed locations have head and neck injuries of some kind. And 21% of patients who are evacuated to a rope or MTF have head and neck injuries of some kind. So these injuries are pretty prevalent out in theater. So how did you get your data? What database was this in? It was from the Department of Defense Trauma Registry, the DODTR. And this was a retrospective analysis. So this was data that we used that had been abstracted into the registry by trained nurse abstractors. So it wasn't me, it wasn't the docs. It was trained nurse abstractors whose entire job it is to comb through all the available medical data of these patients and find all the data they possibly can to make sure they've got as much of the story that we try to tell in the registry as possible. And it's not an easy feat that they do, especially since we're talking trauma, chaotic trauma that happens on the battlefield, but they're amazing and they give us the best data they can. So you mentioned the five groups that you looked at, the dental procedure, the eye procedures, et cetera. What were some of the top actual procedures in the most common groups that you found? So the top procedures were for the eye. We had a repair of eyelid or eyebrow, enucleation of the eyeball, and repair of rupture of eyeball were the most common in that group. And then for the airway group, Temporary tracheostomy accounted for 90% of the airway procedures. And then suture of the of a laceration of the trachea and a revision tracheostomy were second and third in that group. And then in the face group, we had excision or destruction of lesion of facial bone, suture of nose laceration, and open reduction of facial fracture. You mentioned that these procedures were done at the level two or roll two and roll three, which for our listeners, the, the roll two is a forward surgical resuscitative detachment. The roll three is a bigger combat surgical hospital, field hospital. What kind of procedures are being done at that far farther forward roll two? So the most common procedures at the roll two MTX were incision in the thyroid field, temporary tracheostomy, of course, repair of laceration of the lip, repair of the eyelid or eyebrow, and suture of the laceration of the external ear. Those were the most common epidural twos. So you had a pretty big time frame that you discussed, uh, 2002 through 2016, and we were in Afghanistan at that time, in Iraq at that time. Were there any major differences between the two theaters and two operations? So there were variations on the same theme. There were some slight variations between Iraq and Afghanistan in terms of group order. Overall, the first groups were eye and airway. 
And the last groups were neck, ear, and dental. And there were just some slight variations of mix-ups in the middle groups. The main differences were in the workload peaks that were seen during the study period, which were obviously driven by the buildups, key battles, and then drawdowns that were seen in each country. And they were obviously separate time periods that those happens in each country. But overall, the mix of surgical procedures, they were very similar between Iraq and Afghanistan. So we know that general surgeons deploy to both role two and role three facilities. How much exposure are they getting to these head and neck conditions that actually are going to require a head and neck surgery? You know, they're general surgeons, so they're supposed to be able to operate anywhere in the body. But are they getting those reps and they are they getting that training? Unfortunately, no, not really. Keeping in mind that a surgeon is immediately deployable upon graduation from residency. We looked at what residents are doing and we compared it to see how prepared are they for what they're going to face in the battlefield if they're immediately deployable. And a graduate has performed 22.7 head and neck procedures during the residency, which is about 2% of their overall workload that they perform in the residency. And they're not required to do any neck explorations for trauma, none. And in the least shocking news, they performed zero ophthalmology procedures. So these residents are fully deployable to austere locations upon graduating. And with the current study and previous literature and current resident workloads, it's clear we could be doing more to help prepare our surgeon. Specialization is not the answer, absolutely not the answer, because we need surgeons that are competent in a myriad of procedures ranging from abdominal to neurosurgical to orthopedic, and yes, even head and neck procedures. So I'll get uh, Shane to jump in here for a second and ask him, how can military medicine address these gaps in experiences and exposures to these procedures and diagnoses? It seems like the military wouldn't want to be sending surgeons to take care of things that they really don't see in their training and don't have experience with in their normal daily duties. So what's military medicine doing about that? Yeah, so so a couple of caveats to that. I, th- I think it's, uh, I agree with what Karen was saying. There, there's sort of a gap in, in current residency training. However, I, I would say that some of the things mentioned, there's applicable skills from other surgical procedures that residents might do. For example, a neck exploration for penetrating injury to the neck is essentially the same exposure that you would do for a carotid end arterectomy. So while there is no requirement for neck explorations for trauma in residency training, most current general surgeons who do graduate from residency have a number of carotid artery exposures, which is is essentially the same thing that you would do for a neck exploration for an injury to either a major vessel or an aerodigestive injury of the neck. As far as what can the military do for improving readiness, there's a there's a few things that the Defense Health Agency and the services are doing, but when there's there's gaps that that you can't get from beneficiary care at MTFs, I really think the best the answer is partnerships. To Karen's point, while head and expertise is necessary in the deployed environment, it's not as common of a thing to do in a civilian trauma practice. And the civilian trauma paradigm is mostly blunt. It's, it's way skewed over in blunt trauma versus penetrating trauma, whereas the opposite is true in the deployed environment. Penetrating trauma is much more common than blunt trauma. 
So neck explorations aren't exactly a thing that are done multiple times per day in level one trauma centers around the country. However, you can get that expertise there. I think that the next step bridging the gap or, or training courses like Asset Plus, things of that nature that, how, that actually go through things like how do you expose the carotid artery, jugular vein, esophagus in the neck and, and trachea, and all of those exposures are done in Asset Plus. And so, Karen, looking at your data again, you mentioned some of the most common procedures. So that's probably where the general surgeons or the non-head and neck specialists should focus, right, on things in the airway, the tracheostomy, the facial fracture management, and maybe some exposure to the eyes or something that requires an eye surgery. Is that Does that make sense? Yeah. To me, based on what I'm seeing, Absolutely. And listen, I'm not asking surgeons to be able to do everything. I certainly don't think a procedure that only makes up 5% of the total number of procedures out there is something that surgeons should really be training up on. I, I think the main ones from the groups, the top procedures found in these groups are the ones that they should concentrate on because they're more likely to come across those. So absolute temporary tracheostomy for the airway and suture of trachea, absolutely. And ophthalmologic repair of the eyelid or eyebrow in canthotomy and the facial group, excision or destruction of a lesion of facial bones and a suture of the nose are the most common ones. And I think those are the ones that are really worth their time and give more bang for their buck. If I just add to that from the clinician's standpoint, I think identifying what has been done or needs to be done. Not so much that I need to know how to do that if I'm going to be a general surgeon in role two, but what's my plan? So do I absolutely have to do because it'll be a threat to life, limb, or eyesight versus what do I have to be able to manage temporarily because it can wait and then get onto that, those higher echelons of care where you're more likely to find some specialty care. If it's your first deployment, reading a paper like Karen's, kind of gives you an idea of, oh gosh, I didn't think I'd have to address that, but now I better go read up on that. Oh, good. I don't need to do an emergent procedure for that in order to preserve somebody's life, limb, or eyesight. Therefore, I just have to have a plan to get them to the next level of care where they could get definitive care. And that kind of brings up the one of the things I was wondering about. And, and since you're in the Navy, you may not have as much exposure to the ICTLs, which is the ind individual critical task list that the Army has looked at to say for, hey, general surgeons, these are, if you're going to deploy, these are tasks or things that you need to know how to do. It's somewhat related to the KSA project, the knowledge, skills, and abilities. But would you say, are there any head and neck procedures that just the general surgeons need to know how to do them and not just know when to patch the eye and send them out versus flail around and try and figure out what to do if they're going to lose their eyesight? Yeah. So neck explorations for penetrating injuries, absolutely a must for general surgeons who deploy forward. Lateral canthotomy for a eye socket compartment syndrome, essentially. The rest of the eye stuff can usually be handled down, down the line 24, 48, 72 hours later. Those, those two things are probably critical importance. Certainly if emergent surgical airway, so cricothyroidotomy or tracheostomy, although that's usually done more in a controlled environment, but having a comfort with emergent surgical airway is critical for deploying surgery. 
How about facial fractures, like before threes or some kind of major face trauma? Is there anything that yeah, in stabilizing yeah, so I think So, yeah, so stabilizing the face fractures, not so much, but making sure that you have an airway plan so that you can control the airway to get them to the place. If there's mid-face instability or something along those lines, securing an airway and then plus or minus, depending if we, I, we're going to start talking about large-scale combat operations, delayed care. So I, I would submit if it's going to be days that it wouldn't just be an airway, but also enteral access to be able to get nutrition into, into your patient, and, and as well as those having those kinds of thoughts and apps. And then the face can always be fixed later once the patient gets to more definitive care. The other is the fixation of fractures in general. Uh, the general practice in a deployed environment, at least when you're still within theater, is, is external fixation. It's hard to externally fixate the face. I don't know that facial surgeons really do that. They do definitive internal fixation kind of on the primary outside, is why they tend to do it in a delayed fashion most of the time. And, and part of the reason that we do that for most fractures in the in theater is because of the excessively high infection rate by doing internal fixation versus external fixation. Yeah, you know, we've heard a lot about the the golden hour. And I think everyone would agree that the quicker that trauma patients can make it to treatment, any sort of treatment that is life-saving is important. And one of the things that we we may find in future operations is the inability to get people out within an hour. And we've got medics at the tip of the spear. What kind of things might the medics be able to do in these head and neck injuries that require a thing like a tracheostomy or a lateral canthotomy? What are things that we do we think we can train the medics to do? So medics are already trained with cricothyroidotomy. That's part of the TCCC algorithm. So you know, nasopharyngeal airway and then like straight to surgical airway. They, they don't carry intubation equipment, RSI meds and stuff like that, at least when they're you know, the ground medics with the, with the forward forces. So they're already trained for the airway part. The lateral canthotomy is an interesting question. Can you teach a medic to do it from a procedure standpoint? I think so. I think the answer is yes. They're all very smart, capable humans. The hard part is when, because that, when does it needed? Who do you do it on? I'll admit, I struggle with that as a trauma surgeon sometimes. I'd, I'd like to confirm with with measurements and a CT scan, both of which are not available to a, a medic, at least in my in my trauma practice at the civilian center that I work at. So, so that's an incredibly difficult thing to do because it's hard to, it's easy to train a technique or a procedure. It's hard to train complex decision-making without seeing and doing it every day. Yeah, and I think we find that in a lot of these discussions when we talk about operational medicine, the procedure may not be difficult, but having the judgment of knowing when to do it and when not to do it is something that requires some experience. So let me get to that point. We do have ENT surgeons, eye surgeons, oral maxillofacial surgeons that do deploy how do we make them combat multipliers since they can't be everywhere? And these injuries are happening across the theater, but these head and neck teams may be in one or two roll threes. How do we get their expertise and, and maximize that in a downrange scenario? You know, as the U.S. Army has deployed these specialized head and neck teams that consist of a neurosurgeon, an ophthalmologist, and otolaryngologist surgeons. 
in addition to specialized techs and equipment. These teams are not mobile because of the amount of equipment they require, but they can augment a role three that receives a large amount of clinical activity. Augmentation teams, such as the head and neck team, meet a clinical capability for specialized care and are unique in that they don't deploy organically as part of every role three. They can be sent to the busiest role three and where they're needed the most. Although anatomically, this is the head and neck. The fact that three surgical specialists and their nurses, technicians, and equipment exist underscore the challenge of the expertise and specialty training needed to expertly care for these injuries in the head and neck region. Given the number of procedures performed requiring this head and neck expertise, these specialists not only need to have a presence in the combat zone, but they need to be readily available by telehealth support to support those role two and role one and role three MTFs that don't have them there. And they, for the role ones, they don't have the surgical capability, but they may be faced with a difficult head and neck injury requiring immediate airway intervention and hemorrhage control. The risks of these challenging clinical situations can be mitigated by rapid virtual or video telehealth support from those with expertise, ideally in the same theater of operations to support care, continuity, and ease of communication given similar time zones and everything, and also just theater-specific situational awareness in general. In addition to having them there for teleconsultation, I think it's important to have them be able to provide feedback to those out at role one and role two via, you know, M&M reports or even studies like yours to say, hey, these are the things that we're seeing at the role three that's busy. You're seeing them at the point of the spear, at the point of initial injury. And these are things that maybe we could do differently. So I think all of those things are important of expanding their expertise, both in real time, but also in feedback. That, that's the original purpose of the JTS's combat casualty care call that's been going on for Thursday mornings, where we talk, and certainly during the, the the high points of the war, we were exactly doing that, talking about the real patients that had just been injured and their care throughout the continuum from a point of injury all the way up to a launch duel and Walter Reed or one of the other uh, CONUS hospitals. And, and it was really effective. I think we are at in the 853rd consecutive weekly meeting for that. But, but that's, that's one of the main sort of out there focuses for the JTS for exactly that, that purpose that you just talked about. So Karen, in your paper, you talked a little bit about the limitations to the paper and the, the data set that you used. In the future, how could those limitations be addressed? So in the next conflict, we don't have to worry about the limitations that you experienced trying to gather your data. The number one thing people can do to help epidemiologists and data analysis like myself is send in your documentation. I, this, I'm begging at this point, please, if you see trauma patients or patients and MTF, please make sure there is a person there at your MTF who is connected with JTS who sends that information to us. Because if we're not being told about patients or trauma that is happening, we don't know to abstract it and we don't know to include it in the registry. I've done several different conferences where I've had a couple of people come up to me and they say, hey, some of these numbers, 
they seem a little low. I know from my deployment experience, I personally did X, Y, and Z. And my first question to them is, did you make sure they sent the documentation to JTS? And there's a blank face. So they're not quite sure. And so that's the best thing people can do to help us improve our trauma system because we're only as good as the data we have. And if we're missing data, then we're missing important information. Now, were you able to get follow-up data on all of the patients that made it to Role 4, Role 5 institutions? So unfortunately, the DODTR does not track people past 30 days. So we don't have long-term follow-up. I don't have visuals on any kind of rehab that they might have gone through or their long-term progress. But I do know where they were sent. They went to the launch stool and then launch stool to BMC. And when they were discharged from BMC, that kind of thing, I do know. I do know their ultimate outcome of dead, alive, that kind of thing. But as far as like more in-depth outcome information, unfortunately, the DODTR does not have that information. So that kind of segues into my next question, which is, what's the next study? What, what do we, from your data and your conclusions, what do we need to do next in order to improve the information we have and decision-making skills on how we train, man, equip units that go and take care of head and neck injuries? So I believe the next steps are diving into the pre-deployment training and sustainment training for surgeons and how we can make those courses reflective of what's happening out in theater and how military and civilian partnerships can aid in ensuring that our surgeons are empowered with the skills they need when they deploy. The civilians have more cases, absolutely magnitudes of more cases than our military hospitals do. However, those surgeons are much more constrained in what they can do. They are much more reliant on their specialty colleagues. Whereas when you're at a role two or role three MTF, you can't necessarily bank on the fact that they're going to be there. So you need the exposure that they have, but you need a wider breadth of surgical experience that they might not necessarily be able to give you because they have, they have specialists right next door. So why would you need to do it? So there's, there's kind of that balance, but I think we can find it in the MILSIP partnerships. I think, it's, I think it can be done. So Karen and Shane, it, it's been a pleasure talking to you about this, this topic, and it's interesting. I'm going to let, since you're the, the primary author, Karen, if, if you want to give us a 30-second elevator speech of why this paper is important, and if they haven't read it already, why should they pick it up and read it? I'm going to tell your listeners why they should read the overall workload article and the specialization manuscript. So I'm going to give them a little bit of homework. What's done in theater is absolutely important and it's life-saving work. This data should be put to work and used to inform training. If we just let this data sit and become stale, then we failed and the data means nothing and all the data we collected does nothing for us. The answer is not specialization. The answer is not additional pre-deployment training. Instead, the answer is smarter pre-deployment training and smarter sustainment trauma training and meaningful partnerships that can ensure a ready medical force. In all our papers, we outline what exactly is done in theater and we dive into what that means in terms of training possibilities. I'm very passionate about telling the stories of the deployed providers and service members. 
And we do a disservice if we do nothing with this data and no changes are ever made. I'm passionate about ensuring that those who deploy have the tools and skills they need to be successful. And if your passions happen to align with what I've been saying, then please feel free to give my manuscripts a read and stay tuned for some future manuscripts that are in the works. We've been speaking with Drs. Karen Stern and Shane Jensen on Wardock's podcast. Thanks to you both for discussing your paper and sharing insights with us. And thank you for your service that you've performed for this nation. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Yes, thank you. It was fun. And now a brief message from the chairman of the War Docs Board of Directors. Hi, I'm Major General Retired Jeff Clark, and I have the privilege to serve as chair of the War Docs Board of Directors. Let me begin by thanking AMSIS for our AMSIS War Docs partnership, Military Medicine, the International Journal of AMSIS, and specifically Dr. Steve Rothwell, the editor of our outstanding journal of military medicine. Readiness, a medically ready force and a ready medical force is central to military medicine. And anything that we want to understand and improve in medicine, and in particular military medicine, requires good research. It requires science. I want to thank the authors of these articles that are published in the Journal of Military Medicine for taking on the challenge of doing the research to understand what we know, what we don't know, and where we need to go in improving the care we provide on the battlefield. I hope these authors inspire you to ask and answer the next Ready Medical Force question and publish in the Journal of Military Medicine. Thank you for what you and your family do in service to our nation. Be safe. May God bless. Thank you for listening to War Docs. We sure hope you enjoyed it. War Docs is a nonprofit organization supported by donations from listeners like you. Please follow and subscribe to our show on whatever platform you consume your podcasts and rate and review this episode and share the show with your contacts on social media. Find out more information about our show, our guests, and how to become a member of Team War Docs on wardocspodcast.com. Thank you for your support. If you like war stories and medical drama, War Docs has you covered. Spread the word.